And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Hustle. This is your host, Matt Watson. Very excited to be joined today by another Matt. We always love the Matt episodes. So today we've got Matt Genovese, who is the founder and CEO of Planorama. His company does all sorts of stuff with UX and requirements. And as we know, when it comes to technology and software development, that's honestly the hardest part and so many people overlook it. So he's going to give us some tips today about how to do that. When it comes to the software engineering part, if you need help, of course, my company Fullscale can help you. We have over 300 employees that do all sorts of software development, web apps, mobile apps, all these different things. You can check us out at fullscale.io. Matt, welcome to the show, man. Thank you, Matt. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So about a year ago, I posted on LinkedIn that companies don't need rockstar developers. They need rockstar requirements. And I know that that sentiment and message works and people get it and understand it because that on LinkedIn got over 1 million views. Oh which gosh. is still a crazy record for me. I, I post on LinkedIn every day. If you guys don't follow me, you should follow me, Matt Watson on LinkedIn. I have never had another one that's done over a million views. I, I get some that, that are over 100,000. But um, actually, I post something this, this weekend that, that also mentioned about how important it is to have great requirements over great mm -hmm. developers around mm -hmm. the same thing. And this sentiment always reigns true. Like people always relate to how important requirements are. And as developers, we're always frustrated we don't get good requirements. So I'm mm -hmm. really excited for you to be here today and tell us how to do this. So go, let's do it. How do we do this? Well, no, that's the that's the truth. And by the way, I if I had if I had seen that post, I would have liked it and gotten you to one million and one. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the truth. And in fact, that's why I started Planorama years ago. Um, you know, folks usually equate UX design to making the pictures pretty, making the screens look good, right? But in reality, UX and UI design, it's all about requirements. And it all goes back to requirements. It all goes back to what problem are you trying to solve and how are you going to solve it uh, using certain features in your, in your application that you're building or that you're extending an existing application. Um, and at the end, that's what developers need. They need to understand what to build. Developers typically that I've seen don't want to sit there and design screens. They don't want to come up with the functionality. They want to be involved in the process, but if they're going to be successful, they need to have requirements handed to them in the way they need to receive it. And that's what we do at Planorama. We, we smooth the rug out for development and for QA. And you'd be surprised how many projects, you know, that are going sideways suddenly start getting aligned when people receive what they need to be successful in their, in their roles on a product team. Well, and I think it also depends on the type of developers that you have. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of developer that I could walk into any company, you could airdrop me in, tell me nothing, 
but tell me we need to figure out how to do this and give me no requirements, I could figure it all out. Like, but I'm the rare like purple squirrel that could do that, right? Like most developers, yeah. you have to tell them exactly what to do and exactly how they do how to do it. Mm-hmm. And they will follow it very logically and they will go build it. And then there's all sorts of people in between, right? There, there's all sorts That's of shades right. of gray between there. Um, you know, that has always been my unique skill set of like, I could build, so- build software. Tell me what you want to build and I'll, I'll ask all the right questions. I will think about all the right That's things right. and we will build something. And I'm going to guess right. you probably have that expertise as well. And that's part of the reason you've been successful with this company, right? That's right. Yeah, I'm usually that kind of person that uh, I, I never liked black boxes. I always liked knowing what was happening underneath. And so therefore, you know, my my background, I came from chip design. So I understood down to the transistor, down to the electrons, what was happening, and then going all the way up through processors and operating systems and so on. So it was, it was always rather easy for me to... Uh, look at a problem and understand what it was going to take to, to address it, both if it was requiring hardware or software to kind of build it in my head. Um, and so that's why, you know, when I, when I started Planorama, I'm usually involved in a lot of the projects because I come in and can bring that consultative expertise, just like yourself, Matt. Um, but you're absolutely right. Many developers, depending on where they are in their career, it's not even a matter of, you know, their uh, capability. It's just that, if they're going to be successful as they execute in a in a either an agile or waterfall process, they have to be given something so they can do their work. And if you're not giving them what they need, then you're making it very difficult for them to to do what their job is. Uh, which again, most developers, every developer I talk to, they just want to code. They want to write the code. They want to do that. And well, so if you don't give them the requirements, it's it's a you're 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 hamstringing them a bit. I like comparing it to building in a house, a building a house, right? You have people that are plumbers, electricians, carpenters, all these different kinds of trades. And a lot of times that's the software developers. Actually, I feel like software developers are more like plumbers these days, you know, plumbing APIs and frameworks, mm-hmm. all these things together. Mm-hmm. But it takes somebody else that is the architect, the structural engineer, the interior designer, all these other people that are also super important to create a great end product. Otherwise you just end up with a bunch of wood scaffolding that sort of looks like a mess probably. And that's that's why it's such a team sport, right? But most plumbers or carpenters, you would not have them do the interior design or the structural engineering or drawing the blueprints, right? It it takes all of this and all of us, you know, can start as the plumber and work ourselves or work our way up to do more and more of this. But the, the, at the end of the day, you've got to have the blueprints, right? You've got to have blueprints. Mm-hmm. That's and, right. And that's, and, and that's really what the requirements are to me. They're, they're the blueprints, right? They, 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 mm-hmm. they meet code. We thought through all the problems. We, we know it's going to handle the right weight and the right load and all these different things, right? Like to me, right. software requirements are sort of the same way. I think it's a, one of the better analogies. No, I think it is. And, and you're right. You can think of it, you know, in terms of handling the load and, uh, you could think of those as the technical feasibility, right? The technical requirements. So the the architect does need to talk to other people to understand what some of the the the, the needs are from the from the technical or structural feasibility of it. And that includes going back to the you know moving through the analogy back to software. You know what type of connections are there with external um, features or or capabilities or systems, right? Uh, it, and uh, and things like that. When you're thinking about the design, if you're going to go back to the architecture, to the design of the house, um, 
UX, I would say, plays a role if you're talking about what is it going to be used for? Who's going to live in the house? What type of needs do they have? Yeah. And how does that translate into where you put the rooms? And it's not just, you know, it's not the 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 the, the user wins all, right? There's other things to balance, right? You may want to put, uh, if you have a choice, you may want to put, <clears throat> excuse me, put bathrooms above each other, you know, so that you can run the plumbing and save. Right save on costs instead of, you know, doing things where you got to run. If you've got experience, you know that, right? You're thinking about that kind of stuff, but the entry level person wouldn't think about it. That's exactly right. And so that, that analogy carries over quite well. And if you're going to go back, let's think about design of software. If you know that, Hey, we're going to take care of these certain problems, uh, these customer issues right now. Uh, but we're also going to tackle some later on. You can design for that now. So you're not having to go and rebuild portions of your interface or using the house analogy, you don't have to go and knock down portions of your house because you plan on doing an addition later on. Yeah. You plan for it. Got that right? bonus room ready to go. That's right. That's right. You want to put a sunroom? You want to put something else on? You don't have to go build it right now. And that's, of course, the value or the the, the difference between software and architecture in the, in a house, Right. A house usually you're having you you know the cost can be quite high in software. You can mitigate that. You can even go through an agile process where you're effectively living in the house as it's built, <laughs> which is a little bit of a you know I think that's where the analogy breaks down a bit. But uh, you can iterate through and say I'm going to build the bedroom and the kitchen, and that's what I need right now. But I know I'm going to want two more bedrooms, or I'm going to right. want some other bathrooms, and you move forward through that process. And you iterate, and then you find out maybe later on, you know what? I don't need that other bathroom. I want to go and turn that into a closet, right? And you adjust yourself as you move through the process because you learn about requirements from your from your customers, from people that you're working with, and you can iterate that way. But you do have to put your head into it. You have to think through these things, and it's uh, uh, it's it, it. What's what's the what's the term? Uh, um, you can uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. <laughs> Right. If you think well, ahead about this, you'll save yourself so much later on. Well, and if you've never built software before, like almost in anything in life, right? Like if I'm going to write a blog post today, the worst thing I want to look at is that blinking cursor on the white screen. I'm like, <laughs> oh, where do I start? Right. Or the whiteboard. Yeah. Like we've got a whiteboard. Let's architect out the software. What's it going to look like? Or if somebody mm-hmm. says, I don't know, I want to build a house on that plot of land. What are we going to build? I don't know. Like that, that's yeah. the hardest place to start. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, that is the value in working with somebody like you or somebody like me who's been a CTO, a product expert before that mm-hmm. understands like, okay, this is what a good house looks like. This is what good software looks like. These are the things you need to consider, right? That's and right. so tell me if you were, if you're working with a client for a lot of the people that you work with at your firm, like this is the specialty, are they usually people building something new or are they usually like, Oh, I've got this old thing and I'm trying to modernize it and I'm rebuilding it. Like what kind of projects do you usually help your clients with? It's a good question. Uh, it, it really depends. Sometimes it's a new product. It could be a new product in their, in their existing portfolio, uh, or it could be an extension of their existing product could be building other features onto it. It may be that the, the original product was never really designed well. And so we're in some ways we're trying to apply good UX design principles and patterns to an application that, that, you know, previously was designed by engineers. And it looks like, you know, it looks like it was, (laughs) it looks like it was right. And you can tell because they're, and I I don't mean to be, you know, I'm not putting anybody down, but it looks like database tables on the screen because if you, if you, uh, 
if you leave it to somebody whose whose uh, objective is to uh, make the software function, then they will focus on making the software function. And the easiest way to do that is take whatever database fields you need and throw them on the screen and then hit save <laughs> or cancel. I'm sorry, I can't so, stop laughing because that's such a great analogy. Well, so, uh, so we work with all kinds, but you have to start somewhere. Uh, if you're starting with an existing uh, product, well, first of all, if you're starting with a new product, you kind of have a green field, but and if it's an existing yeah. portfolio, you certainly do have to, to, to look at what the other products are and understand how it's going to fit in. And if you have to, you know, go with the same, same aesthetic and the same, um, uh, UX from before and, and try to migrate. Um, but we typically work on, on enterprise software, okay. uh, one, ones in which that there, uh, is normally not only a component that is uh, the the part of the software that the user gets value from, but there's also the administration of the application, right? So you have user management, you have roles and permissions or policies that you're setting up. It's um, all the plumbing nobody of, thinks about. That's right. All the data access. And by the way, most of these enterprise companies eventually want their customers to self-manage, to self-service. Uh, as part, or or the company can do it themselves for a paid plan. Excuse me, but Let, you have to think about that. Uh, so I want to talk about this topic for a minute because mm-hmm. when you know, so if you're an entrepreneur right now and you're listening to this episode, and you're like, "Well, this is great. I want to build this software, and I need to build all the requirements for it." I think the thing that nobody ever thinks about when it comes to software is all the hidden work. And and if you use the house analogy for a minute, it's almost the hidden mechanicals, right? Like, oh, there's plumbing mm-hmm. and there's electrical and HVAC. There's all this stuff. You can't see it. It's behind the walls, but there's all this stuff. So with software, like you said, it's how do I log in? It's authentication. It's authorization. It's things like billing. Like I've seen software before where the billing was more complicated than the software itself, right? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. so I'm I'm curious, what are the kinds of things when you do you think of that are like all these hidden traps? that your clients spend all this time on that they never think about? That our clients spend all this time on? Well, I can tell you, if you don't think about the the administration of your, say your SaaS, let's just call it, let's just talk for SaaS for a moment. Um, you're going to pay for it eventually, right? So you have to think about things like multi-tenancy. Is it single tenant, multi-tenant? Yes. Right? And, and how Big are one. you going to create... Um, and manage the data that is it going to be shared among them? Is it going to be sitting, you know, rather tight? Are you going to keep it in separate databases? I know this sounds like solution architecture conversations and it is, but it needs to involve UX design as well. Cause we have to design an interface that allows people to, well, I should say probably administrators first to segment their customers uh, in a way that they can um, keep the data separate or have data shared among Right. You have to think about, is there other other levels of organization beneath the tenant? Right. And what do those business rules look like? Do you have different departments? Do you have do you just put all the users in one big bucket under the tenant? Um, and then there's certainly user management, you know, and the, the 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 age old issue is how do you get users in the system? Are they going to log in one at a time? Do you do some kind of bulk import? You have to, you know, provide a CSV and how do you do that? That's non-trivial work too, especially if you're trying to define what those users can do once they get the email that their account has been activated, right? So you have to go through that whole process. It's it's all non-trivial type of work. Uh, and then if we get started on on 
permissioning and what users can do. And then of course, what data can be accessed. There's a matrix of possibilities that you have to account for. And again, it, 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 you, you could say, well, it's not customer facing right now. We're not gonna, we're just gonna make it look however we wanna make it look. It's not about how it looks. It's about the function and enabling your own team to be able to manage what they need to manage. And I'll tell you, sometimes if once UX design, once we are brought in and have a seat at the table, um, we start uncovering issues many times that the other folks at the table haven't thought about yet. And if we don't take care of it or at least know about it now, you're going to pay for it later because you have to re-architect. And that's even worse than redesigning, right? It's a, it's, um, you're absolutely right. There's a set of capabilities that your SaaS is providing. And then the other stuff is this massive amount that if you don't know it's there, you'll, you'll get surprised. And we really try yeah. to avoid surprises. So let me, you, you bring something else. I think that's important. And, and we go back to the analogy again. A lot of this is the foundation of software, but I'm curious, what is your take on technical debt? So when you're, when you're working on requirements and working with clients, how do you think about technical debt and kind of what is your definition of technical debt and, and, and how that relates to the requirements and development process when you're working with clients? Oh, that's an interesting, uh, interesting question. Uh, how do I define technical debt? I mean, to, to some degree, I think of it as um, maybe I'll just say it in, in you know, very easy words. It's work that the developers would like to do to make the software better, <laughs> right? But it doesn't necessarily impact the users, at least uh, in a primary way. Um, so for example, you, you might be able to make the software more sustainable, more supportable in the future, more extensible for other features, but um, it's good enough right now, right? It works right now. But in terms of some long-term goals, you may have uh, some challenges. So if you can get ahead on it now, it'll save you later. Um, I think of that as, as what technical debt is. Um, I, I think there's such a thing as design debt too. I don't think it gets talked about a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a similar issue, right? It's, it's good enough. And by the way, one of my, I mean, our, my employees at Planorama, I hear me say this all the time, is like, you know, uh, great is the enemy of good enough. And even in UX design, I think that's true. You don't have to have a superior, you know, um, completely, you know, well-tested, like with everybody, <laughs> you know, design. You can test on a small set and say, okay, we have good enough information and then let's go build it and iterate. I would rather do that than than try to really extend something longer, and uh, and and you know do that at the expense of other capabilities in the software, right? You, sometimes it's more important. You have to weigh um, you have to weigh what you're going to do. Um, anyway, I think I'm kind of going around a bit. What, where did you want to get to with the well, with so the, and design debt? I'm really curious. So des design debt brings up a great point, especially in enterprise software. So. You know, in 2003, I started a company called Thin Solutions that I sold in 2011, okay? okay. 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. If you looked at that software today, it looks the same. The same <laughs> logos, crappy yeah. CSS icons that I made like right. 15 years ago. My now, gosh. 
that's its own form of design debt. But the reason I, I mentioned that in this way is once you've established a UI, it's super hard to change it because you have trained mm. everyone on it, the sales team, all the screenshots, all the documentation, everything has mm. these screenshots and this design, right? Mm. Nobody wants to change it. Nobody wants to take the risk of changing it. Like it, there's too many yeah. people to, to retrain and all this kind of stuff. So they mm. haven't changed it in like all these years. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like its own form of design debt. And um, at some point in time, companies have to be willing to take the risk and like pull the bandaid off and like, we've got to change this, right? Like, is, is that a common problem you run into as well? Like they're stuck on this design and they won't change it because that's the way it's always been. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what ends up happening is you get stuck in the past, you know, you get, it's, uh, um, you, you think that you're going to risk all your all your revenue because customers are going to leave once you change the UI when in reality you don't know what you're missing by not having customers new customers on board onto a, an antiquated yeah, application to begin right. with right because your and app looks like shit that's right that's right uh, and there are ways to mitigate that you know you can you can um, create design and there's design patterns to allow certain users to have a newer experience and to and to test it out right, right? and to slide themselves over to the new way of doing things. And you see that all the time on different applications. There's there's ways to accomplish that, that de-risk the 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 concern about um, uh, people, you know, making a sudden change. You can also start taking certain areas of your application and redesigning those. You don't have to go and, you know, say, hey, we're going to take six months and redesign the entire app. In yeah. fact, that's usually a pretty risky thing to do. Yep. You're better off, because uh, that, that sounds more like waterfall. You want to see if you can iterate at least put together some prototypes and start some usability testing and taking your existing customers, the ones that are in your inner circle, perhaps yeah. or you have good relationships with and start evaluating with them. Uh, but you, you, yeah, you're right. You do have to look at it um, as a, 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 a forward looking problem, not a backward looking problem. You, right. Yeah. You may have customers that, that will, maybe some customers will leave or they'll be ticked off or they'll, they'll give you a call and complain and maybe the, maybe they won't, your customer anymore, but um, uh, there's probably many more customers who are just waiting for you who are silent. <laughs> right. Like, my God, this, this, this is such a pain to use. I wish I could do X, Y, and Z. And if you never talk to them, you never get that information, uh, that feedback, um, they may leave silently and you'll you'll never really know why. Yeah, to, to something that looks uh, fancier and more sexy that's more modern, right? Eventually they, mm -hmm. they move on. Well, if you need help building something new, more sexy, more modern software, you can check us out at FullScale. We've got lots of software engineers can help you build whatever you need. You can check us out at FullScale.io. And of course, uh, Matt, who here is on the show with me today, you can check out his company at Planorama.design if you need some help with the UX and the requirements of that. The, I think a great example of this that, I have to be honest, that kind of angst me every single time I log into it is Google Analytics 4, GA4. I don't know if you use Google Analytics, if you were a Google Analytics guy, but after using it for like 20 years or whatever, now when I log into it, they, it's totally different. And every single time yeah. I log into it, I just want to like kick a puppy or something. It just drives me crazy <laughs> because they totally changed it. So it's like, I don't know where anything yeah. is. I can't find anything. I don't know how it works. And so as a user, yeah. I'm mad every single time I log into this thing. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I used Google Analytics a little bit, but I'll tell you, I never became a power user of it. And so I was that... I was that person in the middle where it's like, 
I know I need to use it and I can find some things, but I know I'm not getting all the power out of this because the, the UX to me was confusing, uh, you know, at least for the, the versions I was using. Uh, but, but yeah, once you go and change the interface and if you make a big clean sweep, and I think Google to some degree is guilty of this at times. Um, oh, they blew up the whole thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. They dropped a grenade they, on it and totally redid it. Well, they also dropped grenades on products they just launched too, you know, and then six <laughs> months later they pulled the plug and like, I was just getting into it. And then you, you took yeah. it away and that's created a whole other UX where I think people are, are concerned about using Google products because of that, that, uh, I'll say that brand that they've communicated <laughs> where it's like, yeah. we might pull the plug at any time. And so people don't trust them. whether you should invest in it. Yeah. Um, so I have a, a question for you. So if I'm thinking about, doing requirements or product planning, road mapping, what kind of tools or suggestions do you have for doing that? Sure. Like mind maps or like, or different software or tools that you use, like what kind of tools do you recommend for people? Well, uh, you know, first of all, uh, the tool that, that we use quite a bit is just a whiteboard, right? And you can consider like engineers, tech folks and, and designers alike, um, all just sometimes need a big white board that they can go and start putting sticky notes on or drawing on, right? And so we use uh, we use FigJam, but of course there's Miro out there as well. There's yeah. lots of different uh, tools that do that kind of thing just to allow for team collaboration. We we happen to be all remote, so it works really well for us to have a you know a common space that we can just start throwing things onto and and keeping it organized. And we we at Planorama, we're, we're very focused on keeping well-organized. So we end up getting our thoughts out and then trying to really pull it out and, and, and decide, um, you know, what, what, uh, how to organize our thoughts better and then use that to, to move forward. Um, the other tool, and I'll, I'll, this is going to sound like shameless self-promotion, and uh, I know you didn't put me up to it, but we built a tool called Symphonia uh, okay. here at Planorama. So we built one to... And I'll tell you, I had the idea years ago is that I found that many tools were out there were more project management tools, you know, moving tickets through a Kanban board or through right. a sprint board. But you don't want to write your user stories in there. You don't want to write your, right. um, you know, a lot of information because those tickets tend to be uh, ephemeral. They just kind of float away, you know, into the into the ether um, after the sprint is done or the, con you know, after they fall off the board. So I, I built something uh, and I had our team build something. We all collaborated about building Symphonia uh, where we, we use it to break down problems. We have a, uh, it's basically a user story, um, a, a, uh, yeah, a user story map where you can create, there's three levels. You can create uh, uh, items in there, think through, brainstorm, elaborate what you need to do and break down the problem. Uh, the thing that we've been able to do is that we're also using generative AI. We, we connected that in. So it can help you to start with a, a, a product definition and then move through to thinking through the types of users that you might have for this, especially if you're building a new product, and then start breaking it down into features and sub-features that you might need uh, in order to address that. And what it does is it helps from a product management standpoint, start to think about areas that you should explore. It doesn't okay. by it, you know, by any stretch, are you not trying to, you know, remove the brain from the product manager but you do want to uh, perhaps give the product manager avenues to explore with users and see if there's any validity to the suggestions that are made from the, from the AI suggestions. And I, I think that that has worked uh, pretty well for us. Yeah, I know 
I, I've used products like AHA before, and Jira has their own uh, product planning stuff now. And I know there's tools mm-hmm. like Product Plan that are real popular. Right? And there's a lot of these different kinds of tools. And so that's really cool that, that you guys have built uh, a, a tool like this. Um, and I think it's really important to have something like that that you can do the planning in separate from like you said, the the actual work items, which a lot of people use Jira or other things, yeah. because it's a mess. It's like a dumpster of of junk. And and I always say the backlog in most of those software is the list of shit you're never going to do. That's like exactly most, right. Most yeah. backlogs are just garbage. You might as well just delete the whole thing. And so mm-hmm. you need tools like this that you actually do real product planning in that mm-hmm. is separate from that mess, I think is really, really important. Well, you know, the, the, the other side of it is that you have the product planning and then you have the delivery to the development team, right? That's the other side of it. Because usually product managers are also playing product owner. There's usually a significant portion of product managers that are writing user stories. Right. And we use, when we work for our clients, uh, typically they have, they're using Atlassian, so they use Jira and Confluence. We write all of our user stories in Confluence and you just use Jira for moving tickets across the board. Right. And uh, and therefore, you what we deliver to our clients is not just the, the the UX designs and high fidelity, but we also are writing their internal product documentation, which should last, you know, as long as the software exists. And it becomes a means for new developers, new product team members, uh, even if you're bringing on an entire new product development team, if you're you know offshoring or you're bringing on a, another development firm. Uh, they they can absorb what the product is so much more easily if they have all the user stories written out in great detail with the designs embedded in. Um, so we make use of Confluence quite a bit and to try to maintain that level of organization for our own clients because it's a deliverable that we see is is as valuable, if not more, than the designs themselves. So I want to um, talk more about user experience and mock-ups and and all this kind of stuff. So when you think of a product team, I guess my first question is, if I hire a a product manager or product owner, and we have people at FullScale that do this for our clients um, as part of our engineering teams, Mm -hmm. I'm curious what all, do, do you expect that to be a different person that does all the UX work? Or do you expect a product manager or product owner to do some of the mock-up work? Like, what are, what are your it, thoughts it, there? It depends on comfort level, but um, the the way we work with and we're brought on as basically the the um, the the UX team for any given product. Right. We work typically with the product manager and offload that responsibility of creating design mockups. Uh, certainly, if they want to go and design something really quick just to communicate their thoughts. That's fine. I'm not going to get in the way of that. But it, usually if they're trying to sit down and design screens and that's not their job title nor their specialty, then right. it's just going to yeah. take them way more time to do that. And you might as well let folks, you know, who do that day in, day out to go take care of it. Um, so, you know, that's that's what we come in participating in. And the, then the, the product manager gets to be a product manager probably in the way that they were or in the with their expectations when they were hired, which is to be able to go look at the market, look at competitors, understand what the needs are, and then relay that back. So we we end up being on point with the, the product manager typically. Well, let me ask you this. I 
I hear people use these terms interchangeably, and I'm curious to your opinion what the difference is. How do you define the difference between a product owner and a product manager? Well, a product owner is a role that is in an agile team. So product, and, and again, I, I, <laughs> this can be debated, I'm sure, if you put you know, the three, two of us in a room, you're going to get three, you know, three opinions. Uh, we, we think of product owner as the person that is responsible in an agile team for managing the backlog and determining what's going to be worked on next. Um, at least, you know, being the point person for that. I know that depending on the agile team, the team may come together depending on the freedom that they have to determine what they're going to work on next. But usually the product owner is the one that has the final say that drives it forward and is the internal facing representative for the requirements. Uh, Product manager, uh, as I understand, it doesn't really matter if it's a agile team or not. They're the one who is responsible for the product uh, in terms of determining. They're the actual owner. They're the owner. Yeah, I know. This is where where naming really messes things up because when I first got into this, I thought, well, wait, who is, who has the power, the owner or the manager? And it turned out, yeah, it's, it's confusing. Um, But the, I always see the, I always think of the product manager as outward facing. They're the ones that ought to be going out to the conferences, talking to customers, getting in front of people. Um, I'll tell you, when I used to work at an, I worked at an ed tech uh, startup that was acquired uh, by a publisher uh, years ago, and I was the product manager, and I went out to the conferences, talked to people. I worked worked the booth on the floor, and that was a great way for me to get feedback and talk to both students and professors who were using the product. You start to get a real sense for what the the the, the zeitgeist, that the opinion is of people about your product and how it compares to other products and what they like and dislike about other products, why they come to you. You hear it enough, you talk to enough people, you start to get a real good feeling for it. You know it better than anybody else. Um, that's what I think the product manager should aspire to, right? They just, they have the data, they know, they talk to people, they get- They the understand the market. They understand it, that's exactly Well, right. and that, that's what's funny about product. Like when people think of product and what product teams do, the answer to that is wildly different from one company to another, right? Like there is somebody right now that works at Shopify or at uh, Spotify mm-hmm. and their job on the product team is to figure out how to get more people to click one button and knowing how often people click that button and why. Like the, yeah. their job is so different than a startup that's like, we're trying to build this thing and we don't know how to build it. Or somebody who yeah. talks to Gartner or Forrester all day and does market research, like, Product can mean a lot of different things and different companies, but it's all related to product marketing or product and the requirements. Like it's all over the board. Yeah, they ought to. I mean, they they certainly ought to have their hand deep in the requirements, right? Know that, hey, my data suggests we ought to be going after these particular features to solve this problem for our customers or to be able to bring on new customers. Completely, completely agree that that is where the product manager should be. Sometimes, and in fact, many times the product manager has to wear the product owner hat right? right, and take on that role. And that's where the challenge has been, I think, because you can't, you know, say a product owner role is maybe 80 or, you know, 60 to 80% of a person's day and a product manager, that role is a hundred percent of a person's day. You can't have 160 to 180% placed on a person's head. Right, it doesn't work. You have to decide that man, that person's got to decide. What am I going to do? Am I going to be product 
owner today? Am I going to be product manager today? And what we do typically at Planner is we offload all that product owner stuff, right? And, and including the UX and UI design as well. We take all of that and uh, therefore the product manager gets to do their role the way that a product manager typically would to understand the product, not have to worry about all the inward facing stuff. We turn around and show them, here are the designs we came up with. Here's how we understand the requirements. We think through the requirements with them, maybe even put together some prototypes, do some testing with customers um, or prospective customers. But in the, end, in the end, we're de-risking that work, that very tactical work to come up. All right. And that's, that's uh, I, I, I think, the, the, the best way to state the, the, the value that we're providing. We're de-risking the, the, the rest of the project in terms of execution. Uh, but we never will know the entire market like the product manager should. And so that's why we have to work with the product manager to do that. So we talked earlier about how important requirements are and how important they are to software developers. Why are we all so bad at requirements? Why can't developers ever get good requirements? Well, <laughs> I think everybody has an agenda. And I don't mean it in a bad way. Agenda is one of those words that I think, uh, you know, it has its own baggage with it. But developers like to develop. They're very technically oriented. I mean, I'm an engineer, right? I got, I have an electrical engineering, you know, graduate degree, undergraduate in computer engineering. I love engineering. I love thinking about technical problems. But the problem is that is not the only work to be done, right? It's not all, not necessarily all about making the highest performance application there is, the fastest re return time, if you neglect other aspects of the value that you need to deliver. So uh, they're going to, engineers typically will pull for the engineering side, the technical side, try to create the most sustainable, maintainable um, performance solution they can. But you need an advocate for the user. You need an advocate for the customer. And if they don't have a seat at the table, then you're naturally going to get pulled in certain directions. You're going to get poured, pulled towards business goals and who the loudest person in the room is and the technical capabilities. And you may not, if you don't have that advocate for the user, which includes product management and UX design, uh, then, then it's going to skew the project, perhaps in a way that, hey, technically it's fantastic, but it's not going to sell. It makes total sense. And I feel like the the farther a software developer is away from the user, like, you know, the more layers of management or, or, or whatever, the farther away they are from the user, the harder it is for them to, them to do their job, right? And it's harder for them to advance and be better in their careers too, because if you mm -hmm. really want to learn, you got to spend more time talking to the users. And I guess I was fortunate enough in my first software development job at a very small company that I was answering the phone doing support. Like I was the oh, one yeah. that got the feedback and like, Oh, the software sucks. We needed to do this. And that yeah. afternoon I'm like <laughs> banging it out, pushing out a new version. Same day. Yeah. Here you go, sir. Right. Like that's totally different, right. Than working yeah. in the corporate world where you're like, well, here's our long-term plan and you're going to work on these sprints and just do what it says. Like yeah. that's yeah. a totally different world. And, and if you really want to be a, truly good software engineer you got to spend more time talking to users and i tell people all the time the best thing you can do is work at the smallest company possible mm. you will you will get you know 
uh, access to do all these different things you wouldn't do and you will learn so much more at a very small company. That's that's the truth. And you may even just from a career standpoint, you may find that you have muscles you can flex that you didn't know you had. Yeah. Right? If you um, when you're in school, like in my undergrad, right, I was a computer engineer uh, from RIT. And so you, you're basically bred to go into either software or into chip design. And once you're there, you're like, okay, yeah, this is this is great. This is what I learned to do. But there's so many other roles and possibilities for you. And you don't have to define yourself by your degree, nor have to define yourself by your um, your business card, right? You can move into other areas that that um, that may be better fit for your personality, right? And if you're a people person, you you know maybe sitting behind a computer all day isn't really the best uh, way to utilize all your talents. So there is there is value in in a small company. You'll probably have more likelihood. An increased likelihood of using all those talents or figuring out that oh I'm good at this I didn't know it yeah because <laughs> you have well to. it you know you know that experience led me to eventually start my own company and be a CTO and do all these kinds of things and be an entrepreneur mm-hmm. so it, it was great experience for me well I do remind everybody um, this was Matt Genovese with Planorama Dot Design. Um, definitely check them out if you need help with user experience or requirements, which I know all of you do. Don't don't lie to me. I know you need help. We all need help. I need help. We all need help. Yeah. Um, if you need help with software engineering, definitely check us out at FullScale, fullscale.io, be it whatever your stack is, .NET, all the JavaScripts, all the things, whatever it is, we do it, fullscale.io. Um, well, Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. Do you have any final words of wisdom or suggestions for other entrepreneurs out there in regards to requirements and the hell of requirements. How is there an easy button? Is there a magic, you know, solution you didn't tell us about? No, there's no, I wouldn't say there's an easy button, but you can make it harder for yourself. And uh, I, I would say the, the, the way to, the way to really figure out what needs to be done is just going out and talking to your customers, like getting out from behind the desk, it's kind of, you know, 101, go, go talk to your customers, go talk to your prospects, put your head in their space, try to really empathize, understand their problems and what they're trying to solve and then what they're going to be willing to pay money for. Right. And that's probably the, 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 the most natural advice. It doesn't mean it's easy to do, but that's probably the easiest way I can say it. Well, hundred percent. I totally agree. And we all suck at requirements and it's, it's a hard, it's hard to do. It's its own art form for sure. So again, this was Matt Genovese, Planorama.design. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Matt. And I, and thank you for making it a Matt and Matt show. So thank you. (laughs) Thank thank you, Matt. I had a great time. It was, it was wonderful. All right. Thank you. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.